Human beings have neither the oral nor the psychological capacity to withstand the awesome power of God's true voice. Theology unplugged. Hermeneutics. Herman who? The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Theology unplugged. I mean, uh, if God is omniscient, if he knows everything, and he wouldn't be God if he didn't, then he must have known, even before the creation of the world, the names of those who will be saved. Theology unplugged. Only let my errors be proven by scripture. Theology unplugged. Would you guys agree that Christianity is defined so much and it's how we act, but we do have some definite theological markers? Theology unplugged. Well, folks, we're back um, resuming our discussion of the question of free will, and I want to start with scripture. I want to ask all of you a question. Uh, everyone knows this passage well. It's from Acts chapter 2 and then again Acts chapter 4. And I'm, what's behind this question is this. Is necessity compatible with true freedom? Is necessity compatible with true freedom? So here Peter is preaching about the crucifixion of Jesus. He says, men of Israel, this is verse 22 of Acts 2. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, stop right there. That suggests necessity. If God planned it in eternity past and knew that it was going to happen, there was no way it couldn't happen. But then he continues, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. Well, who? Well, he's talking about Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Roman military, the Jewish leaders. You crucified, now get this next phrase, and killed by the hands of lawless men. So he's, he's saying very clearly, your act of will in crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ was a lawless deed. You're evil for doing it. You will be held morally accountable before God at the judgment throne for having done this heinous, horrendous act of crucifying the only righteous man who ever lived. But you did it according to the plan and the foreknowledge of God. So then we come to Acts chapter 4 where it's reinforced with even greater intensity he says, for truly in this city, that is Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your well, holy verse, servant Jesus. This is Acts 4, beginning with verse 27. Whom you anointed, there were gathered together Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand, your there is, of course, God, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So... It, it's difficult to avoid some sense of necessity. This was God's predetermined plan. He organized it. He orchestrated He providentially gathered together Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, peoples of Israel to do whatever God had predetermined to occur. And yet we believe that these individuals will actually stand in the presence of God and be judged and punished for their decision to crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. So at this point, what you're saying then, 
As and and got, that would be justice, too. Yes. That's not an unfair punishment. You've got the um, situation and the problem. Uh, it's, it's described and it is put firmly in place. I mean, the problem's right there. You've got men who are doing this and God who is foreordaining it or predestining it. So we've got the tension, right? Right. These men are making a choice, right? I mean, they they deliberated. They they had reasons. They had a motivation for wanting to get rid of Jesus. Uh, they perceived him to be a threat. Uh, they didn't like the fact that the crowds were following him. Whatever the reason that Herod and Pontius Pilate had, uh, the Jewish leaders obviously had their reasons for wanting to dispose of Christ. And yet all of this moral deliberation, this um, weighing of options... Uh, they chose to collaborate and to conspire to crucify him, and they did it according to God's predetermined plan. And so would not some push back and say, wait a minute, you can't have both. You can't have both. If God predetermined it and it was his eternal plan, then it had to happen. And if it had to happen, nobody can be held morally accountable for their complicity in it. And can't we even back that up even to Judas' betrayal? And there's that one verse that almost encapsulates all this. And he says, uh, you know, he says, you, you will betray me. This, is, this has to happen again. It's part of the plan. It, it's, it must happen. It will happen. And then he says, woe to that man. Right. It's like, wait a minute. Why does, to quote the passage, Paul says, you know, why does he find fault? Yeah. You know, he made me do it. It's part of the plan. This is really what you're exactly well, what you're saying. That's what I would push back. If someone says you can't have it both ways, I would say, what makes you say that? Because if they said, well, that's not the universe that I would, whatever, and it's like, okay, well, you didn't get to set it up, you know, like so. If it's, it's you can't have it both, that's what I'd push on. I'd say, where is that coming from? Right. Let me give you another example. Most many people aren't aware of this passage, but in Revelation 17. We have an interesting um, description of the wickedness. And again, regardless of who you think the beast is or the prostitute or the harlot in Revelation and the ten kings, it's obvious that there is a global conspiracy to oppress and persecute the people of God, right? We know that's true in Revelation, whatever eschatology you embrace. Listen to what this says, beginning with verse 15. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the 10 horns that you saw, they, are, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Now again, understand, um, here is this, this global conspiracy to suppress the truth of the gospel, to persecute the people. And then it says in verse 17, because God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So here is this, this global conspiracy on the part of, of the religious powers, the political powers, to give their power to the beast. And the beast, obviously, in Revelation is constantly oppressing and persecuting and martyring the people of God. And yet it says God put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind. And he did this until his words are fulfilled. Now, nobody's going to deny because we read it in chapters 18 and 19 that the beast and the harlot are judged. Chapter 20, Satan is cast into the lake of fire, beast and the false prophet as well. And yet here we are told 
that they did all this because God put it in their hearts to fulfill his purpose mm-hmm. until his words were fulfilled. So again, we have this very clear assertion of divine sovereignty and what we would call in some sense necessity in the same breath that the moral culpability of these peoples is asserted. So how, how do we... Can I ask a question back to your question? Absolutely. So if we were to add up, if we were to take the sum total, if such a thing were possible, of all of the deliberations and decisions of all human beings throughout history, it would be as the grains of sand number in the billions or something, right? So when we read, though, that which is revealed is one narrative, and at several points in the narrative, we, you see God directly orchestrating events so that a certain plan will come to pass. So one question I, I wonder about is, in terms of how I, how I apply uh, what I read to all of life for all people globally, should I think, do I have good reason to think, that the way that it transpires in these, mo- these critical moments in history, I mean like, you know, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, I mean that has to happen. You know, yeah. Judas betrays. That's really important. These are monumental events that you know, this is this is a this is the big plan. Should I think though that that is a pattern for all people all the time? That for is, every decision, that, right? that God is always making every, even the even the mundane, even things that aren't are even things that are miles from this plan, this important plan. So let me let me interrupt here. So you saying that perhaps these incidents that I've cited, the crucifixion of Jesus, the global conspiracy to persecute the church, that these are somewhat uh, anomalies, as it were, singular events in which God is sovereign over them, but... Um, Only because of how monumental they are, right? Yeah, yeah. but but that it doesn't apply across the board? Is that what you're suggesting? I'm, yes, I'm wondering if there are passages that would say, that, that would teach us not that God did this to this guy, not that God saw to it that this happened, but that God sees to it that everything similarly happens for everybody yeah. all the time. Yeah, a unique time. instance of God, because the scripture's saying that God put it in their hearts. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean he's, like with Pharaoh, did he actively heart And that, that's Pharaoh's a separate, heart? but you're asking yeah. a separate question. What Clint's asking it's a good right question now too. is, yeah, that's a different question though. What Clint's asking right now is, does he act that way with every human being? Right. Should I universalize yeah. that? Every single decision. Should I think right. that yeah. every moment. See, here's my point. Yeah. Let me push back, back. It's a great question, Clint, but here's my point. If God can do it in these monumental occasions, if, it, if there is a compatibilism between predetermined necessity and human moral accountability in even one case, Sure. Why can it not be true in every case? So would you because say his resources are not limited, right? Yeah. So for us, we think like, man, he must be really busy, so he's only going to intervene in the really big moments. With well, him, I'm not even saying that. He's I mean, not limited. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Yeah, think, like, I don't think it's because why doesn't he happen? intervene when we sin? And that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like, it's like in one sense, his will is being accomplished, but in another sense, we yeah. are violating. And I'm not asking what God can do. I mean, yeah. for all we know, God could put every minute thought in your mind that you've ever thought. What? Everybody, God can do any of that yeah. if he so pleases. Uh, I wonder, I'm just wondering, is should we think that that in fact is what, well, what happens for everybody all the time? That's a good question, but, but let, let me just come, come full circle back to the point I'm trying to make. The argument of our Arminian brothers and sisters who push back on how we have been articulating this issue is there is a fundamental, inescapable, 
incompatibility between any concept of necessity and genuine moral accountability before God. They are mutually exclusive. They are logically impossible to reconcile. That's the foundation right. on which they say we have to have libertarian freedom. And I'm simply saying that the Word of God indicates on numerous occasions, these are only two that I've cited, yeah. there are numerous uh, examples in the Old Testament. So, Clint, you cited the example of Judas Iscariot, that in which the Word of God tells us that God's predetermined plan and thus the necessity that that entails is compatible with the moral accountability of the people involved and the, God's judgment against them for the decisions they make. If that is taught in Scripture, then even if we can't reconcile logically in our minds, you know, somebody push back. You push back right now. You say, all right, Storm, stop. You, you've asserted these two truths as being compatible on the basis of these texts. Tell us how that works. And my, I would go silent. I can't. I do not know how that works. I have no logical, metaphysical categories to explain how these two things can be real. I don't know. Honestly, I do not know. And I'm going to be. I'm assuming we're all going to be witnesses of the judgment of Pontius Pilate uh-huh. at the Great White Throne. Yeah. And when God punishes this man for his complicity in the crucifixion of Jesus. And we're going to know that he did so because it was the predetermined plan of God that it happened. I don't know how those two things are going to harmonize. I believe they will because I believe in the authority and the truthfulness of God's word. But logically, coherently, somehow account for it. Like, you know, if you said, Sam, prove that two plus two equals four. Well, I could take the four coffee cups that are sitting on this table and I could separate them into twos and I could say when you put them together you count them again they're four we'd all go yeah empirically verifiable I can't do that with this I can't I can't empirically um, uh, analyze and account for how God's sovereignty in predetermining the future is compatible with human moral accountability but I believe they are so well, you're a good company no real, there there's no real aha moment when we come to this issue it's one of those uh, I don't know if you call it a paradox. I don't know what you you just call it a mystery. What did J.I. Packer that, call it again? An antinomy? Antinomy. Yeah, that's oh. not a really good word. <laughs> Nobody knows. He's how to been spell challenged it. for it. Yeah, I don't. I don't even know if I like He's the British, word paradox. I just. I mean, it's a mystery. It's something that uh, I like what, to say. It's a complexity. Yeah, I like to is. say it's a mystery wrapped <laughs> in, in an, an enigma. enigma. <laughs> Inside a riddle. Inside a riddle. Okay, but but our theological uh, opposites here would say, "Oh, come on, guys." It's a contradiction. It's not a mystery. It's not a. Right. It, it, it's not some sort of riddle. It's not some sort of uh, yeah. uh, transrational yeah, paradox. It is a fundamental contradiction that, if you accept, you just throw out any sense of human rationality altogether. And see, that's where I would go back to my initial analogy of hobbits and non-hobbits. You love is this because hobbit business. I do. I'm in the hobbit world right now because. I think it could be a contradiction if it was like, am I free, Sam, in our relationship with each other, and are you in control of the relationship I have with you? You know, and as two fellow humans, it would have to be one or the other. But I think if it relates to, am I free as a human being? So at any time in my relationship with God, you could say, hey, are you here freely? And I think I could say, yeah. I as as much as I know that I can be free of anything in my life, I feel absolutely free. 
And then you could look at God and say, God, are you in absolute total control of this moment? And he'd say, yeah, I'm totally in control of all this. And both are, and I think what, so a potential scriptural observation, uh, we've been in the book of Revelation a little bit. I think Revelation chapter 19 is after many of the judgments that have happened where human beings are held responsible for their actions that we would also believe God was in complete control of. And, and check this out. And we see even angels talking about this in earlier chapters. But it says, after this, Revelation 19 chapter or verse 1, after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. And I just think it's it's some of the first comments, and because it's the great multitude in heaven after judgments, I think we, you could say this scriptural passage is quoting every Christian. And every Christian one day will get to a place where we say true and just were your judgments after we've observed I it. think even oh, non-Christians will say it too. They'll, yeah. they'll have no choice, but... That just came out naturally. That was purely spontaneous. God did not predetermine Gary's comment. So, but what about, I mean, does a permissive versus decretal aspect of God's will factor into this? And like this. So, explain what you mean by those two things. Well, what I mean by what he permits and allows, and then what he decrees and purposes to bring about. So, like here. Is this, I mean, when it says, is he actively putting this into their heart? Is that the only what it way? Says, that's what I mean. Yeah. Is that it how says he has a purpose. He, he, there's a purpose. His purpose. His purpose is that the enemies of the church should be unified in their thinking and unified in their decision to hand over their power to the beast who's persecuting the people of God. And all this, God put it into, put their, into hearts, their hearts. Right. And now notice this, until the words of God are fulfilled. So God has spoken of this prior, and he says, I'm going to bring about my purpose, and so I'm going to put it into your heart to do the very thing that I have predestined to occur, and then I'm going to judge you for it. Mm. All right, well, that's yeah. what I, how do we avoid God causing evil to come by putting it, him actively putting it in? And that, that's kind of... I think in the, in the end, we're coming down to this deal where, where we're trying to solve it. We're, we're trying to put these two seemingly contradictory uh, ideas together, and I think what Sam said earlier, how do we avoid the contradiction, is um, by, by definition, formally, it's not a contradiction. I mean, it's not as if we're saying 2 plus 2 equals 4 and 5 at the same time and in the same relationship. We're saying somehow we have responsibility. We are going to be held culpable. Judgment is true, yet at the same time, we do have true freedom. Now, that is not a direct contradiction. It just seems like it's really hard to put those together. It seems like they shouldn't belong in the same universe. Yeah. But it doesn't mean there can't be some other factor that is introduced into this universe that says, see, this is how they do go together. And you say, aha, I see. I'm not saying what if we get before God, we're going to say, God, you know, I'm not really going to be happy here in heaven until you explain how this works so, out. We may be in the mystery for all eternity saying your judgments are true and you are fair, but at the same time, not being able to understand it. But what, I, what we are saying is in the end, we're putting these two together and we're not attempting to solve it as tempting as that is because we do not want to go away from the fidelity of scripture. And we're trying to stay true and just to what our understanding is. And we're, we're, we're saying we, we can live accordingly. We can live in this 
compatibilism as we described it last time that they are compatible even though we don't understand how they come together therefore uh god did not he is not uh the first cause of evil he did well, not that, introduce evil if that had been any sense you're saying that's evil right well that's what i'm saying here with this passage i mean and then you get into the difference between primary causation and secondary causation which gets into god being the primary agent or being the permissive agent. But that's what I'm saying here with this passage. And I guess this is, it does tie into what we're talking about here because are these people freely acting according to their will or has there been this external um, influence by God directly putting it into their heart? And that's what I'm, because uh, that passage. Now, why, said, why do those have to be two different things? What do you mean? Why he said, do, is it this or is it this? Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, how do we understand that? Like just like with the cross, I mean, God's will is simultaneously being accomplished and violated because the hand, you know, his Sorry. an innocent man is dying at the yeah. at the hands of wicked men and that violates God's will. And I would say Yet in the same the... sense, his his purpose is that so what he's you know what I'm saying? He doesn't want people to sin, but we sin. So we are in direct, you know what I mean, we're violating God's will. If we weren't, we wouldn't even need salvation. So you're saying, you're obviously suggesting then that there are at least two senses in which God may be said to will something. Well, yes. sure, of course. Yeah. And what he allows. And so here, I want, I want to push on our philosopher at the table, and I want clarification. Bring it. <laughs> we, we would all say that 2 plus 2 equals 5 is logically incoherent, and nobody at this table would believe it to be true. And yet, on the other hand, we're saying God's predetermined plan and human moral accountability are true. How can we affirm the latter? Why is the latter different from the former? What is the nature of our argument that avoids the accusation by those who disagree with us? You guys and gal are saying 2 plus 2 equals 5, and you're asking us to just close our eyes and grit our teeth and pretend that it's true. How is that not the case with what I've been suggesting? I don't know that logic is the issue here. I think I do think that on its face, it it goes against what we the moral intuitions that we that seem to be kind of innate. I don't know if it's strictly logical. Uh, in other words, you, you could be completely unfair, or or to push it even further, it could be that uh, as I remember one one of these open theist type guys years ago almost went so far as to say, you know, on on this traditional view or at least the extreme what he saw as the extreme version of it we don't even exist because the guy said you know um if we're characters in a play that god wrote why we don't we don't hold uh we don't hold uh macbeth accountable for for doing all the terrible things he did in any real sense you know why he's not a real person and the guy was saying, and if and if we aren't actually making any choices, and then then we don't even really exist. Now that's extreme. That's an extreme reaction. But what he was reacting against, of course, was was um, in that case he was reacting against even a more extreme representation that I think we've heard here on the other side, which is which which like is divine determinism. Yeah. Well, it was the idea that it was full. It was blatant double predestination. It was basically saying, look, the reason that all these people do terrible things. God, it was the most he's, in, in he's the most simplistic way. He's the primary agent he raised them up just for, they're vessels of His wrath. He's glorifying Himself by making them do evil acts and then condemning them for it. And this guy was pushing back against that idea, and he was saying, "Well, if that's all we are, then you know, you're just a character on a page. You, you may not even be a real person." So well, it's not. You, it's, I don't think that? it's logic, though. That's the issue. 
God could, for all we know, God could be, it could be that way. How would you know it? We're just if it a weren't bunch of Rosencrantz. It's kind of like if you're in the Matrix, how would you know? Right. You know, uh -huh. you can't know it if if that's how. But but you do. When you wake up tomorrow, you will have to live a certain way. And how will you live? You'll live as if you have some amount of freedom and that you're going to be accountable for it. Because if we were to just really pare this down to the most minimal things that everybody would have to agree to, I would think they would have to agree. That when they that when they read through the Bible, I, I'm pretty sure everyone, all parties would have to say, clearly there's accountability for your actions. I mean, I don't think anybody could say could find any um, hermeneutical principle for the idea that I'm just drawn this way. Like I was going to ask Tim later if he thinks the orcs are responsible for their actions. They're just made that way in the factory. Are we just made? We're just produced in the dungeon and made to be bad people. I don't think anybody could could say that there's any room for that interpretation. So that's fixed in stone, it seems to me. The idea that that we must be accountable. Well, and I think right? that's why revelation is so important, is because like if if we're characters in in a in a play, well, or let, let's say we're in the Matrix and we don't know we're in the Matrix unless if some revelation gets through to communicate to us what's real and the way things are, right? And if we're in the matrix and we come across revelation mm -hmm. that tells us what's real, and right. then, then that clarifies yeah. so much, you know? Yeah. And so like, we Morpheus can- is speaking to us. Yeah, we can side. like totally be as much philosophers as we want to, like Plato, you know, the man in the cave, trying right. to figure out, but if it's revealed to him that he is in a, in a cave, then that is a totally different story. Yeah, and I'm gonna, I wanna just make sure, because. Uh, we're running short on time. Michael looks like he has something to say. I just want to go on record because I have obviously presented a conundrum here that we all recognize and, and acknowledge feels as if it's logically contradictory. It feels as if you can't have both God's predetermined sovereignty and human freedom and moral accountability. They, they, they feel mutually exclusive. And yet the Bible clearly says they're not. Yeah. The Bible asserts that they are compatible. Yeah. And so I, I just, I, I want to make sure I'm not saying that two plus two equals five, as much as it might sound like it. I'm simply saying that our God is so infinitely wise and fair and good and sovereign and powerful that he can make these two seemingly mutually incompatible realities perfectly harmonious yeah. in ways that utterly transcend our capacity to understand. And Michael, I don't know, you may be right. It may take um, eons of time in the new heavens and the new earth for us to get our minds around this truth. But the reason I affirm compatibilism as I've defined it is because I think it's taught in scripture. And if I believe that scripture is a reflection of the mind of God, I simply have to subordinate and submit my mind and what I perceive to be rational versus irrational and say, Lord, you know best. I mean, it's like Romans 9 where the, you know, this man, this hypothetical objector keeps pushing back against Paul. Who then can be held accountable? For, who can resist his will? And Paul's response is, who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Yeah. Will, will the pot say to the potter, why have you made right. me thus? Yeah. And we say, Paul... You didn't answer his point. You didn't. You didn't. You know, tease out the objection. You need to tell him how God can be sovereign, 
and uh, his will is ultimately determinative, and yet we be held accountable. Paul said, I, I don't have that answer. What I do have is our God is sovereign. He is wise. He is good. He is just. And the two are compatible, even if I can't account for how they and, are. And whatever, yeah. whatever theory you have, no matter what, if your theory does not come to this table that Paul was at with this objector and say the same thing that this objector said, then yeah. your theory is wrong. I mean, it's got to be. Because Paul didn't answer it with some quick, oh, you're misunderstanding me. Oh, this is easy. Uh, you, you've got to introduce this thing called provenient grace or whatever else that we try to jump in and answer it quickly with. Paul didn't. And so if you have a theory that answers it and doesn't come to the conclusion that this objector came to, why does he still find fault? Then your theory is wrong. This is the character well, what, of God at stake too, and right? The, and I mean, well, it's the, the fairness of God. And that's the thing, though. He has revealed enough about his clearly about his character, about his faithfulness, about his trustworthiness. He's right. revealed enough to to us through creation and in Scripture for us to to trust him, yeah. um, even in these areas. Of, Shall not the judge of all of the earth difficulty. do right? And God certainly didn't have to reveal this stuff to us. He could have left us in our in our state where we're kind of oblivious to the outside, what's going on on the outside. We're just on the inside. We feel responsible. Don't worry about anything else. But for some reason, God did introduce this to us and tell us, hey, I'm in control. I'm sovereign. I'm You, you, you are responsible, but don't ever lose the fact that I am doing my will. I'm accomplishing my will, whatever it may be upon uh, in heaven and in earth. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying Theology Unplugged, let me tell you about some of the other resources we have available. Visit us online at credohouse.org and browse over 2,000 articles on everything from the Crusades to gay marriage. Sign up for email updates and get the latest news, event announcements, and special deals before anyone else. Connect with us on social media. Just search Credo House on Twitter and Facebook. And you can always email us at theologyunplugged at credohouse.org. We want you to be part of the Credo community. Please partner with us in making theology accessible and pushing back the intellectual attack on Christianity. Thank you.